Hello and welcome to Syslog. Uh, this is our eighth episode already, and today is uh, the 30th of July. Um, Julian, did you write any C programs again? Uh, no, I, I'm also confused why I mentioned the date because then everyone can see how long it takes you to edit the episode. Um, I see you're creating uh, pressure for yourself. Um, anyhow, um, no, no C programming today. Oh, no, there is actually C programming today. And um, this will be in the context of Helenos. And for Helenos, we have uh, a guest, which is one of the main authors of Helenos. Uh, Hello, Martin. Hello. Thanks for the invitation. It's my pleasure and honor to be here. Uh, yeah, it's uh, great having you. Um, Martin is originally from Prague. He has a PhD from the Charles University um, in computer science. He's a, a I would say, long-term um, operating system expert and has been around in the in the larger microkernel community for as long as I can remember. Um, so it's really great to have you here. Um, Martin, how would you uh, describe your uh, entrance into the systems programming world? So what was your first contact? Okay, uh, I have been interested in computers since my very, er very early age. And uh, my first uh, proper programming language that I learned myself was Turbo Pascal in, in DOS on, on, on an x86 PC. But I have been always attracted to the low-level stuff, you know, how the CPU works, what, what is happening behind the scenes, what is happening under the hood of the compiler of the, of the operating system. So I, I would say that that, that was my first uh, venture in, into that area when I was uh, trying to use the Unreal mode on the x86 uh, CPU, for example, or when I was trying to to extend the limits of the DOS of a DOS extender, and uh, on the other hand, I, I, this was not my only interest uh, in computers. I mean, I I was always trying to be versatile. You know, I did my share of web programming in PHP. I have learned how to write SQL queries and stuff like that. I I I'm really fond of functional programming as well. But I, I've always gravitated towards this systems level stuff. So uh, w when I was at, uh, studying computer science at Charles University, Jakub Jermasz, uh, my best friend, approached me. Uh, it, I think it was around 2004 that he's having this uh, proto operating system project and he would like to turn it into a, into a team software project. Uh, just to explain, at Charles University there is this course that tries to teach the students how to develop a larger software project in a team. It's a, it's a, it's a group project and uh, you always need to have a topic for that. You need to have an assignment and uh, our assignment was an operating system. So from that point on, I would say I, I started to become somebody who really does operating systems properly. So was it still in your undergrad times? At that time, there was no difference. But yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, I, I, it was before before I graduated. Yes. Okay, that's pretty impressive. So I, I only remember pretty boring software engineering uh, 
uh, projects during my university time. Just, just as a side note, I mean, this is quite unrelated, but out of this course at our university, many very interesting projects actually, you know, spawned. Uh, Helen West, of course, is one of the more interesting, obviously. No, <laughs> I'm joking here. But uh, some of our listeners might remember NetBeans IDE. Some of them might be even using it. Uh, this also started as our university software project. And then the, the, the guys founded a company. They were bought by Sun Microsystems later. So yeah, And there are, there are other examples like that. At this point, I have to mention, so when, when I did a bit of research for the episode, I did, went on a Wikipedia deep dive on the Charles University. Um, and it, it's, it's still mind-boggling to talk about IT projects at a university that was founded in the 14th century. Um, well, they did not have computer science there at that time. They didn't call it computer science. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, the, when you are mentioning this, the, the, this is also something that is quite different from many purely technical universities, because it's originally a humanistic university. You know, the, the original the original faculties were concerning with philosophy and medicine, and things like that, obviously. And there is some kind of uh, tradition of gravitating towards this you know, theoretical subject. So even the computer science curriculum at Charles University is very much about mathematics, about calculus, you know, discrete mathematics, combinatorics, and theoretical computer science. So again, it, it's for, for the best of, 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 uh, of, of uh, the knowledge of the students because they don't just learn to code they they learn to understand what's what's be what's behind the scenes on the theory on the theoretical level on the uh, on the so risking a little bit of uh, of topic conversation so flo and i were at uh, theo Dresden here so which is as far as german university goes very young so it's not even 200 years old the americans are now shocked from the <laughs> microphone um, there on the on the speak headphones. <laughs> I want editing for this. And um, so for us, um, or at least for me, uh, I wonder if you go to a, a university that has such a long history. So do you still see that these days? Or so are there like rituals, or is there something surviving? Maybe there are some rituals, but this is not something you would see every single day. One thing that you would see every single day is uh, the computer science building of the Charles University in Prague, because that building was originally built as a Jesuit college uh, in the 17th century. It's very close to the Prague Castle. It's really in the in the in the old city center, and arguably it's the it's the oldest and nicest computer science university building in the world. It's your beautiful, huge walls with wall paintings and, and stuff like that. On the other hand, there are some drawbacks of that. There is no AC in the offices because you know, it's it's a historical you know, protected building and nobody would allow that. So, so yeah, I mean, there are pros and cons of that. So Dresden has a very new building uh, with lots of steel and glass and uh, open concrete walls. And there's no AC in the offices either. So. <laughs> but... Probably for other reasons, right? <laughs> no, there was uh, this AC in the student labs. 
That's why I, when I was a PhD so student, I hung out in the student labs. Only in the uh, operating system one. Because, uh, I yeah, think because it was meant as a PC server. pool, yes. and that's why it had, yeah, anyway. Weird. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but these days you're not at the university anymore, so uh, you actually moved to, to Dresden. Uh, can you talk a bit uh, about what drove you to, uh, to Dresden? Okay, so I, after you know finishing my graduate studies, I continue. I have been continuing with a PhD study at Charles University, where I have been working on HanOS. So that's probably the the main topic, which we'll get to. And I got my PhD in 2015. Then I spent two, three more, two more years at at the university as a researcher. And I was basically deciding what should I do next whether I should take a postdoc position somewhere or maybe go to the industry. And at that time, in 2017, I got a very interesting offer from some very interesting people from uh, the Munich Research Center of Huawei. So first I moved to, to, to Munich. I, haven't, I have not been working on operating system topics per se, at least not at that time, but it was still very much systems related. And uh, over one and a half years, uh, I have again gravitated back to operating system and microkernel topics because Huawei is working on its own microkernel operating system. And the company has also decided to create a new research center here in Dresden for quite obvious reasons, because Dresden is the unofficial capital city of microkernels. And I said, hey, I, I, this is something I should I, I should do and I would like to do. So I have helped to bootstrap this new research center here in Dresden. I have moved to Dresden from Munich. And since since the beginning of 2019, I'm, I'm here. And Dresden is small enough that we literally saw you move in from our window here. Uh, from the secret recording location. Uh, Okay, but uh, today we're not going to talk about uh, Huawei, we're going to talk about uh, Helenos. And um, I think that the first question I would have is like, what drove Jakob to create it? So what was the initial spark? So the, the initial spark of Jakob Yermas, the original author of Helenos and currently the employee of Kern Concept, was to pass some university courses. Uh, you know, he, he, he decided he, he, he would use this strategy to have, you know, a running project that he would use for seminar works or lab assignments in the C, C++ course, in the, in the programming in assembler course uh, and other courses, and of course in the operating systems course. It sounds like a far more organized student than I was. I, I, I leave that to him to comment on. <laughs> I can't really judge. So, so it was basically his his own pet project. Uh, it was kernel code only, but even at that time, at, at this uh, early beginning, we are talking about 2001, 2002, the, the code base was already written in such a way that it could be ported to other, you know, CPU architectures. So around 2004 it already supported x86 and MIPS and in 2004 that, that's the point in time which I have already mentioned when he, he wanted to turn this into this team software project when he approached me and uh, four other guys and we have transformed this this was like the second phase of, of uh, 
of uh, Helen OS when we actually transformed it into an actual microkernel-based operating system. So, so in 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 roughly one year we have we have uh, ported it to more CPU architectures, namely AMD 64, uh, MIPS, and PowerPC. We have defined the, the IPC mechanism. We have implemented proper memory management uh, and some basic user space services. So when we have defended this this project, it you know there, there was some rudimentary user space. It was far from being complete, but uh, it already showed the potential and it could be tested for for performance and uh, you know for, for for viability. Let's say so. This was like the the second phase of of. Uh, Helen OS, I would still call this the learning by doing phase because uh, you know obviously we, we have uh, we wanted to create the best operating system possible you know with the nicest design and the nicest implementation but we were students honestly so so we we were just intuitively thinking how to design things we were taking inspiration from various sources. Mostly surprisingly, our inspiration was where the monolithic systems, not from the architecture or the design point of view, but from the point of view of uh, code structure and uh, you know documentation and uh, uh, the way um, uh, we prefer things to work. So just uh, to mention something specific, uh, we currently have uh, the ratio of comments in the in the source code of 38%. And we really like that. We really want to have this. We want to have clean, understandable uh, code base with low entry barriers, even for people who, who have never seen an operating system kernel before. Uh, people sometimes, uh, I mean, when I talk to people, they try to when I mention some some design aspect or some implementation feature, they they try they tend to say, oh, so you this like Minix three or you this you like you do this like Fiasco does. I I mean I understand that people just want to want to somehow understand what what are the similarities to something else that they might know better. But I'm always stressing that uh, this is not a direct inspiration. So this, this in, you know, most of the microkernel aspects of HelenOS are really independently designed and independently implemented. And the fact that there are some similarities to other systems, I think this is just a confirmation that some of the ideas are, are, are universally good or universally working or viable. And uh, we have, we have come, come up with the same solution ourselves so but this is sort of like the it now it goes a bit more professional so now this is a real project now um, but at this point you were all still students yes so so the, the the next part of the story begins after we have defended the software project and that was the time when when we released the sources to the wild with, with a BSD license and other people completely outside of our our group or our circle I had the chance to, to start contribute and also I have started my 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 PhD studies and I have focused on on uh, several things like 
potential formal verification of the correctness of, of HelenOS. But practically speaking, adding more features, more feature sets, so that uh, from from this uh, you know embryotic operating system, we could push it to something that might be actually practically usable. Uh, just to mention some of the features that we have implemented over the years, device driver framework with native drivers, uh, virtual file system server with actual file system drivers, graphical user interface, sound sub subsystem, networking subsystem, and stuff like that. We have also ported uh, the code base to more, more platforms like Spark V9, Spark V8, ARM, and uh, eventually RISC-V. And like you have said, we were trying to somehow make the the design and the implementation more polished, but also more refined, more less intuitive and more more deliberate. So we were rewriting things, refactoring things, changing the 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 design and. Uh, uh, Part of my PhD thesis, for example, is about formalizing some design uh, guidelines that, that would define how the system should be actually built, not intuitively, by, but by following some kind of rules or, or how, how should I put it, guidelines, principles. I have to look into that. That's uh, interesting. Um, but at that point, I mean, you mentioned uh, that you had quite a lot of, of features, quite a lot of subsystems. So, how many active people would you say were working on that at that point? It's it's quite hard to quantify because we were never running the project uh, with some you know with some hard deadlines or some some milestones that we would like to uh, reach in in a certain time. So it was always like the best effort approach. Uh, there were some core, core contributors, uh, like Jakub Jermaj, obviously, who was actually never, after after defending the original software project, he was never working full-time on HelenOS. He was always employed by, by other companies like Sun Microsystems, later Avast, now Kern Concept. But he was always doing his night shift and contributing quite a lot of code, I mean, surprisingly. And I have been officially paid to work on HelenOS as, as a researcher at Charles University. And at times there were like two, three, maybe four, you know, contributors that were similarly active, different, different, different roles. But we have always tried to, um, you know, somehow integrate contributors, contributions from, from students. Uh, in the framework of master thesis, maybe bachelor thesis, we have also participated in Google Summer of Code. So we we really try to use all the possibilities to incentivize other people to contribute to HelenOS. And of course, there were also just random contributors which did not get any incentive from us, but they still like the project, like the code base, and they have contributed some features. So to answer your question. When I, I mean, again, depending how how you define a contributor and how what methodology you use for the counting, but I would say it's roughly eighty individual contributors in total over the history of the project. And um, so I was uh, trying to get a feeling like so, so how many full time people, if you like, would combine it into full time people, would, would be like a five 
people. Yes, that that might be a rough estimate. If combined and somehow calculated, it might be an equivalent of five full-time people. It, that's pretty uh, fascinating because I mean, uh, people think it requires like hundreds of people to do something like that, but actually it doesn't really. Um, that really depends. I mean, uh, we have the same problem as most of the other microkernel projects, uh, even those that are supported by huge companies. You know, designing the and implementing the basic scaffolding. You know, the the system that does something has 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 some practical use cases that could be done in in a few people in a few years. However, reaching the feature set, driver set, and support set of Microsoft Windows or or GNU Linux. That's a totally different yeah, ball that's, game, that's, and that's that's always the problem. That's that's the problem for all microkernel projects, because you are, uh, unless you are targeting one single specific device, where you can write all the six drivers that are necessary, and that's it. When you want to be comparable, and when you want to be compared with the mainstream operating systems, you need those thousands and thousands of people who are writing drivers and drivers and drivers and you know support for this obscure file system that few people are using but still they are using it and w without the driver they won't use the operating system so so this is always the problem with with uh, with uh, our uh, non mainstream systems we we need to somehow you know reach this threshold um Yeah, I, you can see that that uh, either yes, you target a very specific system or you start wrapping everything in a VM, which is I think the, the other approach. But yeah, if you really want to be universal, then you're in the pyramid building business, and then you need lots of people. Exactly. Um, okay, so now we talked a lot about uh, the, the the history. Mm -hmm. I think um, I know. I think we we sort of missed the point where you. Um, actually left the university and what, what the state of it is actually now? Okay, so uh, r roughly around the time when I left the university, we actually got all the really big missing pieces. So like I have said, we have functional networking, we have a graphical user interface, we uh, we have a sound subsystem and stuff like that. Of course, I'm not saying that we have everything. I mean, one, one particle feature that is definitely still missing we have just just some experimental branch of that is multi-user support so currently the system is still single user system but the problem is now that you know uh, all the core contributors have their own quite demanding day jobs or they have quite demanding families so we don't have so much time to actually contribute to to the code base There are still things happening. I mean, just quite, just uh, quite recently, we got uh, the, the graphic user interface rewrite. So it's still, you know, the, the the project is still alive and kicking, but the the velocity of the development has has uh, slowed quite quite dramatic uh, drastically. And we even don't have so much time to mentor the students or somebody else who, who would who would contribute. So long story short, the system is, uh, I would say, on the verge of practical usability. 
So I mean, you, you can boot it on on a random x86 machine. It will present you with a user interface. You can do stuff like playing Tetris, and you can run a web server, but you don't have a web browser. So, you know, the, and th this is something we would like to eventually do. So, you know, fill in those tiny, boring, tedious, not so rewarding, not so interesting, but still necessary details to make the system self-hostable. That would be like a one milestone and uh, actually practically usable defined by, for example, the fact that a random person could read their emails or browse the web in the system. So this is like what, where we are right now. So we would, we, I mean, it's really mostly a complete working system, but with many practical, you know, user facing pieces missing. Um, okay, so now we talked about the history. So, uh, and you also mentioned some of the design aspects uh, already. So you mentioned the focus on um, quality of implementation and um, uh, like a high quality implementation. You also mentioned it is a microkernel system, but in, in that space, there's like a lot of options. So what are the design points that Helenos uh, claims? Okay, so, um I could mention the, 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 the let's say more formal uh, you know design principles, but those might be a little bit boring. So let me let me uh, summarize maybe some of the less informal, some of the more informal points. So we really started with the idea that we would like to deliver a, a very solid software engineering work. So. Uh, code readability, low entry barriers, uh, maintainability, extensibility of the code base. That, that, that were always our primary concerns. Uh, not doing so much performance fine tuning. So this is something where we definitely differ ourselves from you know the the original motivations of the L4 L3 microkernels where the performance was 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 the pinnacle and was the most important part the original assembly implementation exactly. of L4 so uh, and the, the result is that our performance is not really bad it might get better eventually if we focus on on some performance optimizations but it's simply not our priority we prioritize the other aspects uh, we never try to mimic any existing design or implementation. We always wanted to uh, use this as a playground to try maybe crazy ideas and maybe abandon them later and change to a different crazy idea, but really not to follow any established principle. We even did not want originally to be bounded by some existing standards. So our system is definitely not POSIX compliant. But of course, this, this decision is quite controversial because eventually you would like to have some you would like to port some applications from 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 the unix world or from linux so so you need some kind of posix compatibility at least to some to a certain degree well, what we did we have isolated this into a posix layer which is totally optional it's not being used for the native components but it's possible to use it some people some contributors 
changed our original mind and they said okay POSIX compatibility is a stupid idea but at least you should be C standard compliant we even you know violated that in many aspects we really used the C compiler as, as, a, as a tool that, that we misused for, for doing things quite differently he persuaded us that maybe we should be at least C standard compliant for various reasons, you know, like weak memory models and stuff like that. Yes, I mean, this this is something we we, we have changed. We are, were always trying to be very portable by by design and by principle because we never wanted to, to be biased by any particular hardware architecture, you know, follow the... Uh, the nice path of, of using all the specifics of that, of that architecture because then that would create problems for future portability. And I would say that this is something that really paid off because the fact that the system was implemented as, as highly portable actually measurably implement, you know, improved the portability to new platforms. For example, the, the port to ARM took about 10, 10, 10 human days, which, which is quite quite good, especially if you compare to some we other microkernels and their struggles to, to port to uh, ARM. We never wanted to focus on some particular niche. We always wanted also to be general purpose. We always I mean, wanted uh, a system, again, right, this is the mainstream this is operating system that could be potentially used do, on a desktop, but on a server, we, we didn't have on an embedded device. For embedded so this also, also somehow defined or, or influenced some other design decisions like our focus on doing things in the let's say breadth first way rather than depth first way so what do you mean with that i mean that we so you had particular not like um this is going to be the best version of this feature that ever existed you just want to cover a wide range of features in a okay I mean, and this is this is not exactly how I would put it, I, but I would say that we always, you know, instead of really fine-tuning one particular aspect, like the performance or like uh, the support for uh, for a particular network driver with all the features, you know, all the potential hardware acceleration, we always preferred to have, you know, a larger variety of features designed in a proper way, implemented in a proper way, but maybe not, not going to, to the limit. So this is a this connects back to what you said earlier for me, because you said this was also a vehicle for you to, for like learning by doing. And for me, if I write code um, for something new that I'm, I'm learning, then at the end, I realize how it should have been. Um, but while implementing, uh, I don't know yet. So, uh, so how was your opinion about um, getting to a good design when when you're also learning the underlying hardware at the same time? I think the answer is to to be agile and not to stick to your original ideas or your original mental model of the thing. We have rewritten so many things. So there are some parts of LNOS that are more or less unchanged. Uh, for, for the past 15 years, but uh, those are really just small, small, small parts. Those parts that really proved, that, uh, have been proven by time. Many other things have been rewritten once, twice, or even three times, like the networking stack. 
like the graphical user interface that I have already mentioned, and uh, also some of the some of the APIs or interfaces have been slightly modified. You know, un- un- uninteresting things or things that we thought originally that might be useful, but turned out not to be useful, were cut out and and changed and rewritten. So so this is this is basically our our method, not to stick to our own ideas if if they turn out to be to be not not right and is the the benefit of having uh, this as a um not as a commercial project so i think in the commercial space it's usually very hard to justify the time to rewrite whole subsystems but yeah i, I agree so um rewriting things is is good yeah, I, I think this is also one important difference to many other microkernel projects. We never started a company to turn this uh, effectively into a, a, a commercial product. We never got some huge, you know, multi-year research grant to push it somewhere. We were always, you know, contributing a piece here, a piece there, rewriting this, rewriting there, discussing, changing things, and and supporting the the, the continuous development of the project by by these small agile steps, I would say. So th- this is, of course, this creates a totally different environment than many other projects uh, see and many other projects live in. So from uh, our Preparation. We still have a lot of features we could talk about. So, what what would you want to talk about? Um, so, what, what is close to your heart from the from the list? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, that really depends. So, whether you you would like to uh, continue talking about, let's say, the architectural features or some some architectural architectural ideas, or whether we should be more specific or more technical. So let me just randomly mention something and if I'm already rambling for too long just give me a sign. <laughs> so uh, one thing uh, for on the on the design side is that we always wanted to avoid having some design anti-patterns more than strictly following some some design rules like uh, this this particular you know thing should not be in kernel space and this particular thing should not be in kernel space. Uh, we always wanted to balance out this sometimes very strict guidelines that other microkernel projects have with 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 uh, also considering the, the bigger picture. And this is uh, what I call the avoidance of anti-patterns. So for one specific anti-patterns that we really try to avoid is the abstraction inversion. Basically saying that, uh, um, basically describing it as a, uh, as a, as a problem that I see in many other microkernel designs, where due to the fact that as much code and as much of policy is pushed out from the kernel space to user space, but there still needs to be some kind of mechanism that that guarantees the basic isolation of address spaces and and stuff like that. The implementation ends up implementing the same mechanism basically twice: one once in user space and once in kernel space. 
and we always okay we always consider the situation and we try to avoid it so for example our kernel memory management really resembles a memory management of a typical monolithic system like like solaris or maybe even linux i mean solaris is a better better example then a really strictly capability based microkernel that pushes even the physical memory management to, to user space because we said hey uh, the you know describing the physical memory by by uh, means of uh, you know explicit kernel objects that the user space then has has a capabilities to is just uh, you know an extra abstraction that that brings nothing why not consider the physical memory addresses as capabilities themselves as as a first class capabilities and just have a more or less traditional api that allows a user space task to to map uh, a physical memory to its address space directly there's no policy involved i mean the the policy which which physical memory is mapped to which part of the virtual uh, address space stays in user space but you know the user space does, does not have to mess with uh, you know capabilities to kernel objects representing physical memory it, it is using capabilities of physical memory so that would be one example so what i have seen many many time in this microkernel world is interfaces that are just too hard to use for any sane user space program and so by saving like 10 lines in a kernel, I'm exaggerating, but by saving like a tiny amount of kernel, uh, kernel thing, where the problem is very easy to solve, you just dump it on every program that runs on top of it and all the programs have to solve it and they are not equipped to solve these problems well. And uh, then you end up in a, with a very complex system that is also very fragile. And um, the more I spend time reading uh, about software design, the, the more I recognize that this is also a really, really bad anti-pattern. My words exactly. I would not have put it better. Um. Okay, so maybe some, some of the other practical features. Um, again, a difference that you might notice when you just download the pre-compiled ISO image and, and run it in, in QMU or VirtualBox or whatever VM you are using or even, you know, running it on a physical machine compared to some other systems like gnode os or l4re is that it's actually a system that you can boot and that it, it does something it has a user interface that that you can interact with and you can just run run programs in it uh, again this is not saying that we are we are better or worse than gnode os or, or, or l4re it's just a different different philosophy different approach so because this is the point where we refer to the episode we did with norman from gnode labs so just for context i mean gnode is a uh, operating system framework it's framework. a framework so it's like a block of lego pieces yes. and uh, usually they come not assembled um, but these days they they have started with the sculpt operating yes. system which is sort of a batteries included version of all of this but exactly yeah, if the people are interested norman episode yeah yeah so so helen os is more akin to scalp os than to the original gnode os framework so it's it's a it's a you know pre-composed 
operating system distribution. It's it's like a FreeBSD or or Minix three or or, or or normal GNU Linux. Uh, this also means that we don't have some kind of configuration mechanism, some kind of you know explicit declarative way how you would glue the components together. We just run them. And we have, you know, auto discovery and auto connect mechanisms that just make them appear in 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 the in the system and provide some services to other components. Again, this is not saying that any component can connect randomly to any component. Far from that. I mean, we have a very, you know, very thought through mechanism how how so-called brokers like a naming service or a location service can locally dictate the policy what can connect to what so so that there is a way how how a, a very fine-grained distributed security policy can be implemented and is implemented but like i have said the goal is for for the average user to just you know run the system boot the system and use the system and if a new functionality is needed, no explicit configuration should be needed. You just run the, the, the new component and it will you know, advertise its services to some other components. But of course, there are some, some again, you know, some, uh, there, there's something that if we follow this philosophy works differently than in some other microkernel-based systems. So for example, our virtual file system is a global service. So, so compared again to Gnode OS and L4RE, where you usually have file systems uh, providing local services to specific components, we have a normal, I would, st I would say standard mainstream global file system namespace where every, every task can access the, the the global file system tree but of course you can you can then run individual file system you know instances that talk to only specific specific tasks so maybe in the, in the interest of time I would um, go to another point that uh, was very interesting to me and you already said before before we started recording that I'm going to be disappointed and that is the the, the question of um, uh, teaching uh, using HelenOS or your, how, how has this informed your operating system teaching at, at the university? So th there are multiple ways how a system like this could be used uh, at the university level for, for teaching students. And we have definitely used it successfully, like I have said, for the master thesis and for maybe even in in the framework of the operating system course but for advanced students who already understand how an operating system is built or should be built and what what the particle things of what the particle typical subsystems of an operating system are doing then it it really works great because like i have said we try to have a quite understandable source code and low entry barriers. I would say that on, on these two aspects, we are definitely beating uh, Linux or any other mainstream operating system by, by a huge measure. However, for those students that are completely uninitiated, who have never written a single line of code in kernel space or whatever, HelenOS is already 
too, uh, I wouldn't say too advanced, but too complex. I mean, it's 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 already a huge code base with uh, many components that need to be uh, running properly for the system to interact with with the user or with with some other system in in some meaningful way. So for those students, we have not even attempted to use Helen OS as a, as a teaching vehicle or as a teaching tool. Actually, at, at Charles University, we have a different teaching operating system, which is much simpler. It's really a bare bone system that, you know, originally what would the students get that is a code base that, that just barely boots and, and implements a simple context switch of some kernel threads. And, and that's it. And from, from there, they implement uh, various missing pieces like synchronization primitives and physical memory management and eventually even some basic rudimentary user space support. But this this original code base, the code base that they get is really... 2,200 lines of C code and, and, and 500 lines of assembly. So this is really something that the student can read through line by line and totally fully understand. I'm not saying this is not possible with Helen OS. Of course it is, but it would not take one week. It would take three months. So this is the difference. So to sum up, Helen OS is not great for an entry operating system course, but it's probably very useful for some advanced operating system course. Um, so this other, uh, this easier operating system, is that somewhere on the internet or is that something you can just get when you enroll in the university? It, it, it was publicly available f during the whole time when I was doing the operating, when I was teaching the operating system course. I believe just last year, for some reason, they have decided to put it behind the, the walled garden for some reason. But I can send you the, the code. It's it's not released as open source for some reasons, but you know you, you can you can have a look. Actually, when we were talking about potential topics for 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 the podcast. Teaching operating systems would be another another nice episode because I mean there are many approaches. I have written a paper about that many years ago, so so there are there are some interesting observations that could be done, and there are also quite new operating system teaching operating system projects that, for example, try to solve the problem which I have also observed even even during my teaching that people are less and less used to code in C. C at least at Charles University is no longer in the in the in the basic curriculum so some people might get it as as an elective uh, subject but not all of them so they are sometimes very much surprised by by looking into the kernel code written in C or even C++ that doesn't matter so so there are, there are other quite interesting teaching operating systems that are written in, in C sharp for example or in Java but the, the interesting thing about learning C even if you don't use it afterwards is that it forces you to understand what happens and then if you if you get bored by C itself, you move on to different languages and you, where you're not bothered with so much, but you still have this feeling of what's going on inside. And I think this is what you mean. So if you start 
you learn assembly, okay, you can do this now, you understand how it works, now you get to program C, you don't have to care about a lot of the details, but it maps one-to-one, -one. and then you go to whatever you have now, uh, you go to, to Rust, you go to C++, and more things get abstracted away, but you always have the connection to the very bottom. I totally agree. And, and this is something you don't get when you start your journey from the top down. Exactly. That Again, I mean, uh, we agree on so many points here. Uh, and this would require an entire discussion to really dive dive into properly. Um, yeah, there's, there are other people in the queue for teaching operating systems. At this point, we can probably do a round table. Uh, <laughs> Why not? Why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, it would be interesting. Um, the 10 minutes, everyone can talk 10 minutes about, about teaching operating systems. We just cut it together into a 60-minute episode. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> Sounds like lots of cutting involved. Yeah, like any <laughs> one of our friends can express themselves in 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry, Michael. Um, <laughs> Julian yeah. randomly insulting people. I think that's what I call this uh, chapter now. <laughs> I think the good thing is that we had so many Michaels uh, so far that I'm safe. <laughs> yeah, it almost became a requirement to be called Michael at some point to be a guest at this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm lucky I'm here before you have established this rule. But we still have most names starting with M. Mm, but, uh, <laughs> I see the better now. But uh, coming back to the uh, actual podcast, um, the, um, you wrote something um, in the notes uh, that I want to read. So this, and this is the today might be finally the beginning of the golden era of microkernels. Uh, what, what do you mean with that? This is this is something that I just observe around me. Uh, you know. I w let me start with, with a broader observation that uh, has been applying in our domain or in, in, in IT generally for, for many, many years, but I, I, it's still, I mean, this is not changing. People are writing more and more complex software. Uh, they are somehow trying to uh, use all the possible means like formal verification, you know, good software engineering practices and and you know good development methodologies to uh, to make the the, the soft, the, this complex software reliable and arguably i mean it's getting better i mean i don't see windows crashing twice per day as it was you know in 1995 or something like that so so there is some progress but i think that the com complexity of the software grows faster than what what uh, the means to somehow tame the complexity and make the software reliable uh, can can do uh, and I think the, the the missing principle, and this is probably something that we agree in the microkernel community completely, this is maybe the only thing that we agree on, the, the, the fundamental difference is, is the software architecture. So, you know, writing monolithic systems, monolithic software where where there are no blast radius, uh, you know, limitations, where uh, a single vulnerability or single you know, safety issue can can you know spread over the whole system and and bring it down. It's just a poor way of writing software. 
and actually it's a poor way of, of implementing anything and people start to realize that this is this is this is you know that the reliability is more probably more important than you know time to market and and stuff like that because sooner or later there will be there will be liability about you know uh, the the negative effects of 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 buggy software since our our society is generally more and more reliable or more or more and more relying on 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 software and uh, it's just a matter of time when when a huge disaster will happen and it will be caused by buggy software and all this put together people have uh, you know realized that uh, generally uh, there is this microservices movement where people you know consider writing their enterprise grade software not as monoliths but as you know systems composed of fine grained components and uh, i really hope that uh, the current investment of large companies like google or Huawei into their own microkernel operating systems is just you know mirroring this general approach so uh, i think that we are at the beginning of the golden era of microkernels because we cannot uh, do anything else we cannot keep on you know piling on more more stuff on the you know fundamentally broken monolithic operating system implementations that we are using uh, I agree, and this is also the time where you see more and more microkernel systems being actually deployed. Um, exactly. So Apple is on the forefront deploying this uh, Google, you mentioned Google, um, lots of uh, internal things that start to look uh, like microkernels pop up even if they run on Linux, so they're designed like if they run would run on a component-based system. System. So for example, Gnode, you can just use it as a component as a software taming mechanism on top of Linux, if you want it. Um, yeah, so I also agree. Um, there are also other things. I mean, I would say that, and you can quote me on this, in 20 years, Linux will be also a microkernel. I mean, you see all these gradual steps of, you know, uh, giving the possibility to have user space device drivers, having the possibility to have user space file system drivers, uh, it's just so, not going to be a good one. Uh, the, but it's a, a, so the one paper I wrote that I'm reasonably proud of uh, has exactly that point at the end. So this is my, my networking paper from like six years ago. Um, and that is even now you can write software on Linux that really treats it as a as a microkernel. You can write user space drivers. You have you can only use the IPC mechanism to some event file descriptors signaling some Unix domain sockets, bam, it looks starts to look very much like, like any other microkernel system. And then you can write very finely um, um, compartmentalized software on it. It's just that very few people do it, but it, you see it popping up now uh, here and there. And I think it's really just a matter of time when people will start realizing, hey, why should I start with a Linux kernel? and strip it down remove the stuff that i don't need and then you know replace you know the, the the in kernel networking stack with some user space networking stack and stuff like that 
why why not start with a nice you know lean small microkernel and just add things that I need? Isn't it actually easier than than stripping down Linux? Well, it's probably a case of people know Linux. I mean, you know, most students who come into university in their first semester they already know Linux. Um, at least a whole lot more than there are students who know any microkernel. Um, that's a fair and, point. And so I think that's that's the case that people know Linux and then they think there is maybe three operating systems in the world and then there's only one that you can actually have the source code and hack on so they take that to hack on. So I think we have maybe there is a PR issue here or a marketing issue. Um, so I think the good thing is if, if you would have asked me five years ago I would have said uh, Linux has destroyed operating system um, progress because the default is just to use Linux for everything and gets you 80% of the way and then you just define the last 20% away. Um, but yeah, I think there, there is stuff coming and even if, if it's just that Linux says like, oh, we will not accept more USB drivers, you can do them in user space, go away. Um, that would be a good first step. And there are other analogies. I mean, in the systems domain, it has been always said that C is an old language designed in a completely different era. It has its share of problems, but it, it's 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 an operating it's a programming language designed for writing kernels, and therefore many kernels, even microkernels, are still written in C. It, this is no longer true. I mean, there is Rust. There are there are other languages that have not only the ambition but also the potential to gradually replace C with something that is that has all the benefits of C and none or almost none of the drawbacks. But of course, this won't happen overnight. This will be a gradual process. And I think even in my 80s, I will be still, you know, uh, I, I, I would be able to earn some, some reasonable money because I know C quite, I, quite I a lot. But still, I mean, I might be the, 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 the one of the two remaining persons on, on this planet who knows C. C will be replaced. And this is the same, I believe, of course, this is just maybe wishful thinking of me, but I believe the same process will happen to to Windows and Linux gradually. It will either morph into a, a almost a microkernel or it will be gradually replaced by, by microkernels, starting with, of course, the safety critical and mission critical use cases, but maybe maybe you know if you run everything in 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 uh, in a cloud you don't really care what what kernel is you know supporting your workload as long as it can run docker yeah and yeah. Uh, why and not now we know the i think this is a good point uh now to, to draw like a, a line because now we know that our retirement is safe because we can red sea um so we can stop bothering about things and enjoy our vacation in a nicely paid job maintaining ancient software. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's like COBOL. It's like C is, is, the, is the COBOL of uh, 2020. Mm. I, I see a tagline <laughs> here in this. Um, okay, so I would say we, we, we've discussed this topic uh, um, uh, sufficiently. 
and uh, with that I would say uh, thank you Martin for your time I will try to include as many links to resources that I have um, if you send me more video links I am also happy to include them in the show notes um, the show notes you can find on thislog.show where you can find all the episodes and the link to subscribe which you probably have done if you listen to this um, we are also happy to receive feedback um, either via email if you can find it on the website there's an IRC channel on uh, Freenode, uh, UKVLY. There's a Matrix channel, which is actually the same channel. Um, and you can find us on Twitter on UKVLI. Flo, did I forget anything? I don't think so. But I like how you always write it out in the air when you say UKVLY. <laughs> Spelling is hard. I used all the brain cells for C program. Uh, and it still crashed. Okay. Anyhow, okay. Thank you, Martin, again. Um, Thanks for having me. And for the listeners, see you next time in the next episode. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.